I first chose this theme of turning points when I realized that this month marks some turning points in our collective history that must be noted. Some of them catastrophic, like the 75th anniversary on the 6th and 9th of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Some of them at least potentially liberatory, like the 100th anniversary this coming Tuesday of the ratification of the 19th Amendment to our Constitution, which, while it's often said to have guaranteed all women the right to vote, that wasn't necessarily the case in Texas, where African-American women were often subjected to ridiculous tests of their ability, and their votes were suppressed by reason of race, and still too often is. And yet such events were surely, in some sense, turning points. Looking at one's own life, uh, some turning points come clear quite easily. The birth of a child, falling in love, a wedding, a graduation, a job that opened doors, a divorce, a move. Some, however, are far more tangled and hard to see, as Richard alluded to, especially in the moment. And even public turning points, like the ratification of the 19th Amendment, when examined closely, were, as our reading put it, merely the dramatic conclusion of a far lengthier and more tangled process. I think it's easy to forget the long arc from Abigail Adams to Margaret Fuller to Seneca Falls to Susan Anthony and Alice Paul, or how many women and men through that century-long struggle were opposed to equal rights for women, a theme that has still not departed. Oh, there was drama in the conclusion. In August 1920, 35 states had approved the amendment, and only one more was needed. But all across the South, legislators had voted against extending the suffrage. Ratification came down to Tennessee. It passed the state Senate, but in the House of Representatives, the vote was 48 to 48 against taking up the issue at all. The speaker, who was opposed to women's suffrage, nonetheless came under pressure to set a final vote for the next day. And the youngest representative, 24-year-old Harry Burns, who had voted against considering the amendment, read a letter that evening from his mother saying that she was certain that he would be a good boy and do the right thing and support her right to vote. So when the speaker called for the vote on ratification, Harry voted yes, and the amendment passed. Now, I first heard that tale early in my ministry when I served in Knoxville, Tennessee, nearly 50 years ago. And it's a good yarn. It's the kind the History Channel likes to put on television. There's just this wrong with it. Obviously, it makes a young guy the hero along with his mom. And it forgets all that tangled earlier struggle. 
For example, did you know that the suffrage movement was set back in this country when it actually split over race? Yes, after the Civil War, when the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution were proposed, introducing the word male for the first time and promising black men the right to vote, women's leaders like Susan Anthony, a good Unitarian, and her friend Elizabeth Cady Stanton strongly objected, the latter actually using outright racist language to oppose giving newly freed slaves the right to vote while leaving out educated women like herself. She then began what one feminist historian has called the myth of Seneca Falls, as though she were the heroine at the beginning and the founder of the movement, a version that largely ignored pioneers like Margaret Fuller or the Boston abolitionist Lucy Stone and other feminists who knew that the moral arc bends only in stages and who were refusing to make the perfect the enemy of the good. And yet that split caused by the endemic racism of this land, lasted a generation and set back the cause of women. Paradoxically, it was out here in the American West where men tended to dominate, that women were first granted the right to vote at the state and local levels. Wyoming was the first place, then Montana, and California came along in 1911, nine years before the amendment. A key leader in that effort, by the way, was the Unitarian feminist Carolyn Severance, who co-founded our church in Los Angeles and was the great-grandmother of our own member, Merrick Munn. Carolyn was called the ethical magnet of this state. She joined with her friend Julia Ward Howe in becoming the mother of clubs, developing women's clubs, like the one your mom belonged to, perhaps, Richard, that tried to bridge the gap between women of privilege and women working and breaking into professions that were previously all male. Julia, who once spoke from this very pulpit, didn't let her lack of a seminary education or ever having been ordained prevent her from being the founder of the first women's ministerial association in the United States. Yet women of her, that era were far too decorous to take to the streets. Some historians feel that the suffrage cause in the United States didn't really become effective until it did march, borrowing that strategy from the far more radical feminists in Britain. But did you know that the first women's rights march in America actually took place right here in San Francisco? It was in August of 1908 led by women from the Glen Park neighborhood. Good middle-class women who marched underneath banners that they themselves had done fancy embroidery on. The first march of women on Washington followed five years later in 1913 to put pressure on newly elected President Woodrow Wilson to endorse the cause, as he finally did. So behind every turning point lie other twists and turns, like the cord that Richard alluded to, that tie us developmentally back to our mothers and forebears and make us who we are today and place us where we are in history. My own mother, it occurs to me, was born just six months after the 19th Amendment passed. Her parents had both been orphans from Slovakia 
who met and married in Chicago and had four children. And yet by the end of the influenza pandemic of 1918-19, they had buried all four. Can you imagine? They then moved to Kenosha, Wisconsin, where my mother was born two years later. And during the Great Depression, which took hold 90 years ago this summer, my grandfather lost his factory job. And for three years, the family was down in Texas trying to scratch a living out of parched soil and nearly starving. But somehow, when they returned north, my mom graduated at the top of her class in a large urban high school. And her father then stunned her by saying that he would pay to help her go to the university in Madison. Something that young women in immigrant families just could not dream of back then. So I know deep in my bones that everything I have ever done has been made possible by those who went before me and by turning points in their lives that were just pure grace, though filled with hope and faith and love. Take that first ministry of mine in Knoxville, where I served a congregation full of activists, but also university professors. And since I was still in my 20s, they intimidated me, and I labored over my sermons until they read like publishable essays. Meanwhile, Gwen and I, newly married and new parents of two girls, were going through the fact that her mother died in an accident. Her only sib, her brother, then took a year to drink himself to death. And we both felt helpless overwhelmed. I felt burned out in my ministry and asked for a sabbatical, which were not yet common for clergy. And the woman social worker who chaired the committee on ministry had the honesty to say, John, we like you as our minister. You're smart and caring. You do fine work for us and in the community. There's just one little thing we'd like you to work on during your leave. Would you please learn how to preach? There's a place for lectures, but it's not in the pulpit. Talk about a turning point. I enrolled at a place called the National College of Preachers, where one of my instructors was a black Pentecostal with a sharp mind and a progressive spirit named James Forbes, who spoke at the last General Assembly where I was UUA president. One assignment he gave us, I remember, was to go to the movies rather than read a book and see if we could get a sermon out of that, about the human experience in it and the good news to be found within that experience. So a colleague and I went out to see a film called, you guessed it, The Turning Point, made in 1977 
starring Anne Bancroft and Shirley MacLaine. I won't claim it's a great film and I see it's not available on Netflix at the moment, nor will I recite all of the turns and twists in that plot, which revolves around the world of professional ballet. But here's what still sticks with me. Looking back over one's life and its turning points can be clarifying, but it must move beyond any regret for those roads not taken or the mistakes we undoubtedly have made. Because what counts is that every moment, now and lying ahead, is a potential further turning point, both for oneself and in some way for the wider world. What matters is opening oneself to gratitude for all that has been, along with hope for the grace to move forward in faith and courage, especially the courage to turn love into greater justice. I think of the role I took on after being UUA president, co-chairing National Freedom to Marry. At first, as the only non-gay person in the room, much less the only clergy, I had to recruit and bring in more straight and religious allies. And when we lost elections like Prop 8 here in California, I had to learn from Evan Wolfson, the brilliant attorney activist who led the effort, that civil rights history always teaches that there's such a thing as losing forward. That is, using every setback to gather more people to recognize the unfairness and even folly of refusing to allow greater equality. I don't need to tell you that we are now in a threefold crisis here in America. It's part pandemic, it's part economic, and it's part political. I would urge you to forget the narcissistic notion that things have never been so bad before. History knows better. Leave the narcissism to those who know nothing about history or compassion or gratitude or honesty. I think of my mother once again who was forced once out of social circumstances and basic civility to meet a Wisconsin politician who pioneered some of the demagogic tactics of the fraudulent leader now in the White House and came away saying of Senator Joe McCarthy, hmm, another self-made man who worships his creator. Friends, none of us are self-created. We are here by the grace of those who went before us. And even in the midst of these great crises, collective and perhaps deeply personal, we are forever at potential turning points where the first turn should be toward gratitude and then openness to the further grace we need to show more faith and courage. Take the pandemic. 
It is turning many of us toward an ever deeper sense of our shared human fragility and our interdependence, even as we self-isolate. May we together pray and work to see that it leads to better cooperation in global public health and responses to the climate change that our heedlessness has made a factor in almost every challenge we face. Take the crisis of conscience that white America is finally going through after the police murder of George Floyd. Finally, penetrating at the public level the denial that is such a hallmark of our culture of white supremacy. Mind you, I think that it's like a collective recovery from an addiction that will require many turnings and repeated spiritual efforts. Yet surely it is something that we are at a turning point where white allies, perhaps for the first time since the death of Dr. King, are again willing to follow the leadership of black nonviolent drum majors for justice. Embracing now a black woman as a candidate for the second highest office in the land. Hallelujah. And take even our present economic crisis. May it awaken us to the truth that growing economic inequality is bad for everyone. For while 23 million Americans have lost their jobs since the pandemic began, here in California, the 165 billionaires our state boasts, more than any other, have added an estimated 175 billion to the fortunes they already had. There's something deeply wrong with that. And it's why Faith in Action, the interfaith network to which we belong, supports Assembly Bill 1253 that would levy a further tax on the highest incomes to help this state maintain its schools, its health care, its vital services, its public servants. Yes, turning points can be awakening moments. <laughs> I woke up two weeks ago got on the bathroom scale and said, oops, John, the famous quarantine 15 for lack of a gym, time to turn it around again. You've done it before, do it once again. And the next day while out walking to get in my 10,000 steps, I saw stenciled on a sidewalk on Geary the words, last night, was the last night of my past life. A good motto for anyone who is consciously trying to seize a turning point. Our society has faced pandemics, economic and political crises before. We can use the present one to draw from the best of their courage and spiritual awareness to turn toward our own health, toward the common good, and toward a better future. May we each individually and all collectively
do all we can to turn in that direction once again with the same faith and courage that marked those, the best of those who went before us. So may it be. Amen. <laughs>